It's my pleasure to introduce our guest speaker this morning. Some of you might know him already, but for those who don't, I'll share a few things about him. Uh, John and his family came to Evergreen when Evergreen was back, uh, back in East L.A. in Boyle Heights uh, back in 1979. Um, I think I got to know John through probably from playing basketball initially when John was probably in high school. And it's been good, such a great thing to see how the Lord has just grown John and how he's just grown into be such a, just a great leader, a strong man of God. And I've learned so much from John, even now in the ministry that he's a part of. But it's been good to see how John has grown, how he's been uh, an intern here at our church, well, back when it was a unified church. And then John has been involved in pastoral ministry for over 20 years. Uh, being a pastor here, then also John was sent out as a church planter from our church to start a church as well. And if you ever had a chance to hear John share or to read his blogs or to read the letters that he sends out, you will really see that John is an equipper and an encourager of pastors, of Christians, and he's really just building up and strengthening the body of Christ. And, and so we have the opportunity to hear uh, John speak today. And I also want to mention that his wife is Sonia. He has four children. So let's welcome John with a warm welcome. Thank you, Ron, for uh, that wonderful introduction. Um, my wife and I were once at a, a family gathering, and we went away from the gathering uh, with my wife concluding that my uncle on my mother's side was probably one of the nicest men that she had ever met. And then on our drive home, we began to ponder who are some of the top five nicest men we've ever met. And so she named my uncle, uh, a couple other people, and Ron Miyake. And then we got to four, and we needed one more to complete the top five, and I said, can you think of any others? She said, no. I said, are you sure? What, can you think of anybody else? And she said, no, not really. And then she said, oh, yes, yes, you, you, of course. <laughs> So, Ron, uh, coming, uh, that nice of an introduction coming from one of the top five nicest guys that my wife knows means so much to me, especially since I'm not officially in the club, apparently. Um, <clears throat> but it is my privilege to preach this morning. Uh, many years ago, we left Evergreen to plant a church in Chino Hills. And after returning uh, a little over 10 years later, I never imagined that we would be coming into or back to Evergreen, let alone back at a time during such a momentous season of transition as this one. This morning, I wanted to start with a story about transition. Uh, when you start a new church, there's constant change in transition. And so when we first got started, uh, as all uh, church planters know, uh, you are always counting. You are counting to see if we have enough money. You are counting to see if we have people in the seats. Church planters have an unusual type of math in their heads so that you not only count adults in the seats and children and babies and unborn, but you count uh, anything crawling and, and anything active. And so during that season of growth and, and change at the beginning of this church, I was also praying that new leaders would come and join our church. 
And so we barely got started, and one Sunday, in walks a family that I didn't recognize. It was a husband and wife, and they had an adolescent daughter. And uh, we'll just call them Jack and Jill. They actually gave me permission to use their names, but we'll call them Jack and Jill. They joined a small group that met in our house. I discovered that Jack was a former elder at the church they had just left. Jill was a Sunday school teacher and sang on the worship team. She had a beautiful voice. And so a few weeks after they joined our small group, I was sitting in my church office, uh, which was a coffee house. That's where we all, all church planters would hang out and mooch off the free internet. And it was Jill on the other line. And she said, Pastor, I know I don't know you that well, and I know we just came to the church, but I have to tell you something that I just heard. And for the next 30 minutes, she went on to describe a discovery that her husband had another family in another city, a woman who was not his wife and another daughter. Now, I was shocked and obviously, Jill was devastated. This was the beginning of a major transition in Jill's life, one that she would have never asked for, especially in this way. And I'm sure when she came to Christ, this is not the Christian life that she envisioned. Have you ever struggled with life's transitions? Naturally, we want our life to get better and better. And to get better, it requires change. And we know this, but it's, it's still really difficult for us. Why? Is it because we don't like or transition? No, we like changes for the better. Then why is transition so hard for most of us? And I think it's because of the way it happens. To put it another way, we often don't have a problem with transition. It's the shape of transition that we struggle with. In today's passage, we look at the shape of transition as found in Philippians chapter 3, verses 8 through 10. And so if you have your Bibles, turn with me there, or actually 8, 10 through 11. Please stand for the reading of God's word. The Apostle Paul writes, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Let's pray. Father, we pray that as we come before your word, that your spirit would not only enlighten the truth of your word, but that your Holy Spirit would bring the truth into our hearts and our lives and that it would be a source of not only direction, but it would be a source of encouragement, of wisdom, and help. So would you anoint our time together? We pray, Lord, that you would move by your mercy 
in and through this broken vessel, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. In Philippians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul has a very narrow focus. There's only one thing that matters to him. In fact, it's the one thing that has redefined Paul's entire life. What is that one thing? Look at verse 10 of chapter 3. Paul says that I may know him. That Paul may know Jesus. The most important thing in Paul's life is to know Jesus. Ever since the risen Lord confronted Saul on that dusty Damascus road, it's become Paul's life ambition to know Christ more fully. He just couldn't get enough of Jesus. And this wasn't always the case. Before knowing Jesus, there were tons of things that used to be important to Paul. And so if we turn backwards in chapter 3 to verses 5 and 6, we see that Paul makes a list of how he used to evaluate his life. In verse 5, he says, I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. At the ministry that I serve with, see Jesus, we call this chart or this, this list, we put it on a chart and we call it a, a failure boasting chart. And I don't know if you can see this, but the higher you go on this chart, obviously the more important you are. The lower you are on this chart, the more insignificant you are. And so if we chart the Apostle Paul's list, he starts and says, I'm circumcised on the eighth day. I'm the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. In other words, I, have a prestigious, I come from a prestigious family. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. In other words, I have the right heritage as to the law of Pharisee. I have tremendous knowledge and education. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. In other words, I'm good at what I do. I'm accomplished. As to righteousness under the law, I'm blameless. In other words, I am holy. If I were to kind of uh, chart a modern-day version of this, it might look something like this. I was born into a Christian family. I received a good education. I, was, uh, I did sports or music or other extracurricular activities. I'm a well-rounded person. I eventually went on to get a prestigious career. Maybe I got married and I have some children. I'm a mature Christian, and by the way, I have it on social media so everyone else knows. There is absolutely nothing wrong with most of these things in of themselves, but when they become the source of our identity and the goal of our life, there's a big problem. Many of us assume the Christian life in some ways also looks like this. Over time, my life should generally be moving from worse to better. And so yes, it requires change, but overall over time it should just get better. It should get bigger and better and, and if possible, faster. But it doesn't take long for us to know that the Christian life doesn't unfold this way.
In light of knowing Christ, look at how Paul views those things in verse 7 and following. He says, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth, again, here it is, of knowing Jesus Christ or Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and I count them as rubbish. Paul says, in light of knowing Jesus, none of these things matter. They can't compare. They're rubbish. Literally, the word is dung. Again, the only thing that matters to Paul is he wants to know Christ more. Paul then says here in verse 9, he begins to unpack how you know Christ. He says, In order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. So first and foremost, Paul says, How do you know Christ? How do you know Jesus? By faith. Or here it says, through faith. When we believe in Jesus, his perfect life, or as the passage says, his righteousness is made our own. His righteousness is accredited to our account so that we are made right with God. How does this transfer happen? Through faith. Faith is the conduit, the means by which Jesus' payment on the cross is accredited to our account to my lifelong debt of sin, and it's paid in full. This is how we become Christians. This is initially how we enter into a relationship with Jesus. And so Paul no longer counts in his past accomplishments as important. And so what has replaced Paul's boast? It's faith in Jesus. All he can boast about is faith in Christ. That's all that counts. That's all that matters. So Paul says we know Jesus by placing our faith in him, but it doesn't end there. He goes on in verse 10, and there's another way of knowing Jesus, and in some ways even more deeply or more personal. Again, you can't know Jesus if you first don't know him by faith, but once you know him by faith, Paul says there's another deeper way you come to know him in that relationship. And he says that I may know him, again, here's that know him, and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings becoming like him in his death. We know Christ by faith and we also come to know Christ greater when we share in his death and resurrection. The New Living Translation says it this way, I know Christ by faith, I come to faith in Christ, I become a Christian, and as a result... I can really know Christ and experience the mighty power that raised him from the dead. I can learn what it means to suffer with him, sharing in his death. So what does it exactly mean to share in the death and resurrection of Jesus? Do we literally share in Christ's punishment and bodily resurrection? Mm, of course not. We, we, we can't go back in time 
and relive his death and resurrection there at the foot of Calvary, but today we can reenact it. This reenactment of the gospel has a specific shape. It looks like this. And at See Jesus, we call this shape the J-curve, and I'll let you take a moment to figure out why. Because generally speaking, the gospel moves from life to death to resurrection. From life to death to resurrection. And so at see Jesus, we call this the J-curve because it's shaped like the letter J. Remember the shape of Jesus' life? If we look at Philippians chapter 2, verses 7 and following, he describes the shape of his life, or the apostle Paul describes the shape of his life. In verse 7 it says, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. In other words, he's choosing to go down in submission and humility and death. And I know this is really small, so we'll blow it up. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so Jesus is moving down in humility, becoming one of us, and then suffering to the point of death. At the bottom of this curve of the J is the death of Christ, even death on a cross. And then there's that word, therefore. In other words, there's a shift going on, moving from death towards resurrection. And therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name above all names, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Remember how Jesus described himself in John chapter 12, verses 23 through 24? We just, or we just heard the worship team sing this, and it's based on this passage. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Two weeks ago, I was traveling in Japan, and I was teaching some leaders about the J-curve, and I, uh, Ian was with me. And so he led worship, and we partnered together. And uh, while I was teaching on the J-curve, he sang the very song that Daniel just sung. And Ian has shared that it was actually this idea of the J-curve that really inspired the song, as well as obviously the words of Christ. And so if we think and we know that the shape of Jesus' life moved from death to resurrection, if his life followed this path, what makes us think that ours would be any different as we follow him. If Jesus' life followed this path, what makes us think ours would be any different as we follow him? The J-curve is not just the shape of Jesus' life, but ours as well. The Christian life is not only initiated by the gospel, but it's reshaped by the gospel or remapped by the gospel. In other words, your life as a follower of Jesus will be full of many deaths, 
challenges, suffering, sacrifice, obedience. And at times, it will also include real-time resurrections, inner life change of heart and character, amazing and miraculous change in your life circumstances. I like what uh, J.I. Packer says, a, a famous theologian, in his book titled Keeping in Step with the Spirit. He says, for this is to be the pattern of our lives. He's talking about the lives of Christians. Through love and obedience and the tribulations of pain and loss for Jesus' sake, we enter into a thousand little deaths day by day. And through the ministry of the Spirit, we rise out of those little deaths into constantly reoccurring experiences of risen life with Christ. Many of us are thinking, okay, resurrection power, that sounds pretty good. I want that. But that second part that Paul mentions in the passage, the, sh the sharing in his sufferings, I'm not so excited about that. And so I don't know how many people I've had come up and say, okay, I kind of get this, but is there a way we can do this? In other words, can we somehow skip the dip? Is there a way to move from life simply to resurrection? The interesting thing is, is if you remember that chart that Paul had about the boasting and failure, it's kind of the same trajectory. Couldn't things just get better and better and better? Do we need the dip? But what does it exactly mean to share in the fellowship of Christ's sufferings? For one, it means that suffering is part of the Christian life. When you come to Christ, you are not absolved from suffering. The gospel does not eliminate suffering, but instead remaps it. In fact, some of you know that when you came to Christ, your life actually got more difficult, not easier after coming to Christ. I remember uh, there was a young man, or a man who came to our church who I hadn't seen since high school. This was about three years into the plant. He was not a Christian. He eventually became a Christian, and when he did, almost immediately he lost his job because of false accusation. And so I was so worried for him because his life, just the bottom fell out as soon as he became a Christian. You see, when the gospel does not eliminate current suffering and it remaps it, the Christian life no longer looks like this kind of slanted uh, capital I where things just get better and better. Rather, the Christian life is expected to look like the J. And I don't have to convince many of, uh, t uh, lots of you about this because as Christians, many of you have suffered greatly. The Christian life is not an easy life. Some think the sharing in Christ's sufferings in Philippians 3 is only persecution and martyrdom. And while it can be that, it's not only that. 
In other words, there are various forms of dying. It's not just literal dying for the sake of Christ, and it's not just being persecuted for the sake of Christ, but there are many ways to experience little deaths that draw us into Christ. And so what, what do I mean by that? In general, there are, you can kind of categorize dying in, th in three types, and it all depends on the location of trouble. So here's what I mean by that. In the first one, trouble is here, and it comes and attacks you. Uh, in the case of my former classmate, high school classmate, he was uh, falsely accused, he lost his job, and so trouble is coming his way. Uh, that's what we call suffering. And amongst many responses to suffering, when we're especially unjust and unwarranted suffering, uh, one thing we should do is endure and draw deep into prayer, crying out to the Father for help. And so through this grows endurance. In the second case of dying, trouble is not outside of us, but it's actually located right here. And this is when we discover that sin is inside of us, and the form of dying that it takes is that we realize that I have to die to my old self, ask Christ for forgiveness, and be washed clean. And so in this case, this is called conviction. and it leads me towards repentance. The last one is uh, the most peculiar to me because trouble is here again, but it's not moving towards you. In other words, you decide to move towards trouble. In other words, uh, trouble is not coming your way. If you don't do anything, you'll be fine. But you willingly, out of obedience to Christ and to do what is right, you willingly move towards something or sometimes someone where it's actually going to cost you. And this is really just called love. And so that friend that I had uh, who became a Christian, trouble was upon him, he lost his job. While in the process, he discovered that there was trouble inside of him and he was repenting of certain things in his life. And at one point, he moved forward to not only forgive those who had wrongly accused him, but to actually be uh, moving in love towards others. Now, no matter what type of death it is, the net result is that we are drawn deeper into Christ. We know him better, not simply because we're acting like him, but because we are being drawn deeper into our need of him through it. In other words, when we suffer, we cry out to Christ and help through prayer and lament. 
When we are convicted of sin, we lean on Christ for forgiveness of our iniquities and assurance of his grace. When we choose to love when it costs us, and especially if it's someone we really don't want to love and it's going to really be painful to do so, we quickly discover that I am dying to myself and I don't have what it takes. And I draw deep into Christ and say, please help me through the presence of your spirit in me to love this person that I don't have the ability to do so. And so let's not forget Paul's primary obsession with this entire chapter. It's to know Christ more. How do we know him more deeply? We share in the fellowship of his sufferings. So some of you might be thinking, okay, I think that kind of makes sense, but what does it look like in real life? Let's go back to Jack and Jill. Uh, they enter into uh, professional counseling, uh, Christian counseling. They uh, enter into a long season of pastoral counseling with me. Uh, obviously, trouble is coming Jill's way, the discovery of this other life her husband had. She is suffering to no fault of her own. Now, I, I often tell uh, couples who are having marital difficulty and fell into a situation like them that when you're in a bad marriage, you have two people who equally contribute to a bad marriage. But the one who did what Jack did, he is solely responsible for what happened. She did not make him or lead him to do that. And so she has trouble coming her way that she does not deserve. And so she is suffering greatly, and through her suffering, she is drawing close to Christ. Her prayer life is growing. Her dependence on Jesus is growing through tears and very uh, many hard times. On the other hand, uh, Jack is recognizing more and more uh, that it's not a matter of just blaming him, uh, uh, his wife, but also recognizing there's big trouble, there's big sin in his own heart. And he's beginning to repent and turn away from that sin and ask for forgiveness from God. And he's also beginning to move toward his wife. And so there, are, there were times, many times, where he was actually trying to do the right thing, and she, for him to move towards her in love actually was harmful to him. Because the more he moved towards her in love, obviously the more angry she got. And so he was trying in many ways, as he was working through a process, trying to move towards her. But it was a costly love, and she had a right, obviously, to be angry. Eventually, Jill actually forgave him, and in doing so, it cost her right to be angry, and it gave her husband something he didn't deserve. You see, sometimes when you're at the bottom of the J-curve and you think you're at the bottom, things start to get a little better and you go, oh, finally, we're at the bottom. And then a week later, it actually doesn't just kind of go backwards, but it actually gets worse. And then it gets a little better, and then a week later, it gets even worse. And so it's kind of confusing. And this is what it kind of looked like when I was kind of walking alongside uh, Jack and Jill. And so sometimes you have a big 
sweeping chapter of a J-curve in your life, and just when you think you're actually moving towards the bottom, you find out, wait, it's not the bottom yet. What's going on? And so what's happening sometimes is that you have a lot of mini J's hanging off of it. And so while this big chapter, for in the, in the case of Jack and Jill, there's this big, big J-curve where their marriage as they knew it was dying, and they thought, oh, this is the end of it, this is the end of it, and it seems to be getting better, it seems to be better, but it keeps getting worse and worse at the same time. And so there's this big sweeping movement of the death of their marriage as they once knew it, but there's all these little J's that are hanging off of it of repentance and forgiveness and, and, and uh, deeper prayer and love. And to make it even more confusing, sometimes, as you know, as complex as life gets, there's a tiny bunch of little J's hanging off the little ones. Now, some of you might be right now in the middle of J-curve. You might be feeling like you're at the bottom. In fact, you just thought you were at the bottom and then it got worse. When you're at the bottom or you think you're at the bottom, life feels chaotic. It feels awful. You can't bear it. It feels like you're going to die. And the temptation at that point is to drop out of the J-curve by renouncing our faith, to sin, or simply just to shut down our hearts so that it doesn't hurt to keep hoping. And if that's you, I want to encourage you to hang in there. If you feel like you're at the bottom of the J, hang in there. God is not done. In fact, just when we think we're losing our faith, we may be, we may be at the baseline of actually beginning to exercise it. What I mean by that is we think that faith is sometimes a ladder that we climb up as tall as we can to show God that we trust him no matter what. But in reality, faith really is a pit that we fall into and say, I cannot do anything apart from you. And so what happens when we get to the bottom of the J and we begin to be stripped of this misnomer that I have control over my life, that at the bottom, the, the joy is, is when you're at the bottom and you discover that everyone has left you, you have no ability, and you look around and you discover that Jesus loves to be at the bottom of the J. Jesus has been at the bottom of the J, and he loves to love those at the bottom of the J. And just when you think you're losing your faith, you may just be simply exercising it. In fact, most of the time, we are not lacking faith. We're just lacking patience. God is working out his purposes. They are for his glory and even for our good. And he's not done yet. The best is yet to come. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, I think you'll see it in your, your uh, study this week, if you're part of a transition study. The people of Israel are encouraged to remember the wilderness season 
And in chapter 8, they, they recall all of this difficulty and sin and, and repentance and, and all of this uh, uh, hardship. And you kind of wonder, why, why are you trying to remember, have them remember that? And, and the reason is, is because Israel was, was in the wilderness. They were in this big J where they, God was moving them into the wilderness. And just when they thought they were bodying them out, God is reshaping a people. And sometimes, literally, a generation is dying before the resurrection or bringing them into the promised land. And so what I love is in, in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 11, after, after they're recalling all these difficulties and, and, and the hardships in the desert, God says that all of this was, and let me quote the verse, to do you good in the end. So they recall all of this hardship, all of this difficulty, and then there's this concluding phrase that says, God allowed this to happen to do his people good in the end. When you're at the bottom of the J, you think this is the end. It's not. In Christ, we can have confidence that death has purpose. I just traveled to a country in Japan where death is honorable, but it doesn't necessarily have purpose, and there's definitely no hope of resurrection. Suffering, repentance, and love are not wasted. Death is not in vain. In Christ, death always leads to resurrection. And yes, I understand there are some situations where it literally ends at the end of life and we have to wait for the final resurrection. But there is a lot more happening in this life that God has not done yet than we realize. You see, when Christ rose from the dead on the first Easter morning, that resurrection power that was unleashed does not go dormant until Christ returns someday. Resurrection power is active right now. It is bringing transformation and change today, not just tomorrow. And so the resurrection that Paul speaks of in verse 10 is Christ's life-changing power in my life right now. And so the power of the resurrection can change my circumstances, and it can even change me. And so if you are a believer in Christ and feel stuck personally, you can have hope today. God is going to bring resurrection through the deaths in your lives. Now, there, there's two things to note about resurrection, amongst many. Uh, one is a resurrection of the heart often precedes the resurrection of the circumstances. And what, what, what I mean by that is God often changes me on the inside before he changes my life on the outside. In other words, he often begins to change and work inside my heart and my character and my faith and my hope and my perspective. And oftentimes, it's actually, that's actually what leads to a change in my circumstances. And so while we are focused on the circumstances, oftentimes God is focused on us and then the circumstances. The second thing to note is that you cannot create resurrection 
You can only wait for it. You cannot create resurrection. You can only wait for it. Even Jesus did not raise himself from the dead. He waited for his father to raise him. And so while he didn't have a choice to rise, Jesus always had a choice of whether he was willing to die. Likewise, when you're in a J-curve, you can't make resurrection happen. In fact, some of our stress in our lives is sometimes because we are trying to make resurrection happen in our life that we have no authority or power to do so. And so in the meantime, while we wait in faith on the Lord, we always have the choice of whether we're willing to die in one of those three ways, if not all. Many years have passed since Jack and Jill were on the bottom of the J-curve, and last week I emailed them and asked, what, I asked them if they were fine with me sharing this story, and they said, by all means, share it, use our names and all the details. And so I just asked the simple question, what kinds of resurrections, now that you look back on that season in your life, do you see God has brought? And Jill wrote three broad things. She said, number one, my relationship with God became stronger and more intimate because of the suffering of Jesus, I knew he understood betrayal, my deepest pain and loneliness. Because of this, I could confide in him at all times, knowing he understood me. Number two, she said, our marriage was resurrected. Because my marriage was torn down, it had to be entirely rebuilt from the ground up. While the work to rebuild was extremely difficult, I was encouraged uh, by Jack's humility and often silent determination and commitment to put the pieces of our marriage back together and create one that is stronger and deeper through counseling and sharing and other things. And number three, which is my most favorite, she says, there is an amazing joy and gratitude. During those dark years, I understood how truly personal God is. He faithfully cared for and protected our tiny family when we could have easily become another insignificant statistic. I continually thank him for the many prayers of our church. We could not have gotten through it without them. I am so grateful for the kindness of our church family. The gracious love shown to us was a testament to God's mercy, especially to our adolescent daughter. I cannot praise him enough for who he truly is. Don't you just love that? So as we close, we need to ask ourselves, what does this have to do with transition? Because the shape of any change or transition for the followers of Jesus will be shaped like the J-curve. In other words, any transition will involve, any significant change will involve death and resurrection. During this transition season of our church, many of us are simultaneously going through personal transitions as well, both big and small, and that is not accidental. God is doing many, many new things all at the same time. Now, interestingly enough, eventually, Jill not only forgave Jack, but together, uh, they wanted to include the other daughter into their lives. So what that meant is occasionally they would have two daughters, not one, which meant they would come to church sometimes with 
two daughters rather than one. So as we were working with them through this, and again, remember, this is over the course of time, they wanted me to announce it from the pulpit so everyone knew, so it took all the awkwardness out for the adults as well as the kids. And as we kind of talked and prayed and worked through it, we said, you know, the church was relatively small, and so everyone, almost every, most people were in small groups, and so with their permission, I worked with them to, for me to attend every small group in our church and to explain the situation and try to help our church appropriately respond, support, and also to, to kind of uh, inform their children when one Sunday they might have a new person in their uh, uh, Sunday school class. And so God was not only doing a work in their marriage and their life, God was doing a work in my life as a pastor. I was repenting because I just wanted leaders. And he was teaching me to repent of seeing people rather than positions and learning to love. And then on top of that, he's, he, he, was, he was encouraging and challenging our church to love. And so our church, unbeknownst to me, was in this tr big transition of growing in love. What was he leading us toward? He was leading us toward becoming family. And so I believe God is doing the same thing here. There's tons of J-curve stories going on individually here. And God obviously has this church in a big transition of moving from what we once knew in regards to with Pastor Corey leading the congregation to a new pastor. And not just a new pastor, but a whole new era for the church. And I believe part of what he's doing is that he is making us more family, but that's not the end goal. The most important fruit of this transition is not, to, is not unity. It's a byproduct. And so I don't mean to beat a dead horse, but let's not forget what the Apostle Paul's greatest desire was from the very beginning. It was not unity. It was to know Christ. How does that happen? Through faith and through the J-curve. And so this is an exciting season in, our, in the life of our church because God is taking through the, us through this transition, not so we can move in, in following one pastor in order to follow another, although that's part of it, but the whole purpose of this transition, broadly speaking, is that we might be drawn deeper into knowing Christ, who has always been, and Pastor Corey and Pastor Rocky has always said, Christ has always been the head of the church. And so the process of this transition is drawing us deeper into Christ, not only that we might know him more and depend on him more, but begin to look and live and love like him more so that the church actually does look like Jesus. And so I'm very excited and I'm very hopeful for what God is doing in this season. I don't know every single situation, obviously, of these individual Jaker stories, but I believe it's not accidental of what God is doing in your life and in the life of this church. And because Jesus has been raised from the dead, we have hope. And he is not done yet. And the best is yet to come. Let's pray.
Lord Jesus, I thank you that because you rose from the dead, uh, Corinthians says our faith is not in vain. We, we don't, uh, we don't uh, sing in vain. We don't evangelize in vain. We don't suffer in vain. We don't love in vain. Because you are raised from the dead, we have hope and we have purpose. And so we hang on to you, Jesus. Lord, I want to pray specifically for those who are uh, maybe at the bottom or it feels like the bottom of, of some very deep J curves. And I ask, Lord, that you would come alongside at the bottom of the J where you love to reside and that you would give comfort and endurance and hope. Lord, that when we lift our eyes up to the hills and ask where does our help come from, we see it comes from you because you are there and because you are trustworthy and because you love us. And so would you provide encouragement and endurance and hope? Would you provide wisdom as we wait on you? Would you make us, as well as us as a, individually, as well as us as a body, to know you more fully and to live and love more like you in the days to come? And so we commit ourselves to this. We just love you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.